I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a new podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. My guest today is the co-founder of a restaurant group that I regularly frequent myself and has helped popularise Mexican food across the UK. Since opening in 2007, the company Oaxaca has grown to over 25 locations, earned multiple awards and become known for its bold flavours and commitment to sustainability. It's a real success story and I'm really happy to be joined in the studio today by Mark Selby. Hello, Mark. Hi there. So, Mark, let's just go back to basics. So you founded Oaxaca with Thomasina Myers. Yes, Thomasina um, Myers. 12 years ago now. And so did you think it was going to be a success? Was it something you thought, I want to scale this into a huge chain of restaurants? Or was it, I just we, want to we, create one? We definitely wanted to scale it into a lot of restaurants, sort of a, an undefined amount at the beginning. Um, did we think it was going to be a success? Uh, we, we were pretty positive about it. We, um, we did sort of... Uh, pitched the idea to our investors originally who kind of said well why wouldn't you have fajitas and and nachos and sizzling plates of steak and peppers that's what mexican food is and when we kind of explained to them it was about beautiful crafted soft corn tortillas and creating kind of pork-built tacos or you know sweet plantain tacos and things like this the concept which they'd never really seen or heard of before kind of somewhat worried them I think and only when we actually got them with Tommy and we sat them down and cooked them off everything we were talking about did they start really kind of getting interested and excited. So your background you'd worked in restaurants before? So I'd worked a little bit in restaurants I'd worked as a sort of right-hand man for the two founders of Nando's and prior to that being I'd been in investment banking and then I worked um, with Stelios who set up EasyJet sort of helping set up new easy businesses. So you're seeing what could happen. You could see it in terms of get something right, how you scale it. And yeah, how, how how to to, I think how to scale things, how to think about starting up new businesses, how not to be afraid about things, trying ideas out, all those kind of elements where when you're young and energetic, you don't think too much about it and you get excited about it. And just talk me through your relationship with Thomasina. She won MasterChef. She won MasterChef. So uh, it was back in about, she won in 2005 and... Around about that time, I was looking around. I knew I wanted to go into... As a kid, I always either wanted to go into restaurants or theatre. Those were my kind of two passions. And I sort of worked my way through the career to get to a point where I was ready to go down that line and and set up my own business. And restaurants was something I was really excited about. And particularly Mexican food. I'd kind of looked around the world pretty much and said, what are we missing over here? And having travelled around Mexico when I was 18... In fact, got my A-level results standing in uh, in the Zocalo, the main square in Oaxaca, and knew that Mexican food wasn't represented well in the UK, so got really excited about that. And then happened to be sitting next door to a friend of mine at a party, and she said, oh, well, you know, if you're doing Mexican food, you should meet Tommy, because uh, Tommy went and lived in Mexico City for a year and a half and probably knows the most about Mexican food, I'd say almost in Europe, actually. Um, and Tommy had just won MasterChef and was kind of excited, looking around for opportunities to bring Mexican food really over to the UK as well. So we literally met an hour later, shook hands, and three weeks later we were in Mexico together, kind of dreaming up what was to become Oaxaca. And explain the difference between Tex-Mex then and your... So I think there's a, menu. you know, te- Tex-Mex is effectively old school Mexican. And, it, and when I say old school Mexican, old school Mexicans sort of outside Mexico. We're, we're very careful not to criticise Tex-Mex because there is 
occasionally, you know, going out, having a big night, slamming some tequilas, having some fajitas with lots of sour cream and cheese and, you know, stuff like that is great fun and, and the food's okay. But I think Tex-Mex, the flavour of the food isn't necessarily the biggest driver. Whereas for us, Mexican food is about the ingredients and the flavors and the, the incredible taste that you get when you're all on a street market in the middle of Mexico City or Oaxaca or wherever you are, and you just get this unrivaled explosion of flavors. And for us, that was really, really exciting. And Tex-Mex doesn't really explore that. It's more about filling people up, overloading it with chilies and too much heat or just sizzling meats. And so things. this podcast is about rethinking business. So you had to rethink, I guess, you understand what Mexican food was, but you had to rethink how you connected that with an audience or potential yeah. customers that just didn't get it. My big sort of inspiration for me at the time was Wagamamas, which I loved as a sort of a teenager growing up and was really excited about how they'd taken Asian food and brought it to the UK. And so for me, what was interesting about them is they'd taken this style of food that no one knew and their job was to educate people about it. And what we had to do was actually take a food that people thought they knew and totally turn it on its head and explain to people, no, 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 a taco is a soft corn tortilla where you put some delicious flavours. It's not a hard shell which you stuff with chilli con carne. And it's all that education bit that was, you know, and still continues to be a big challenge. We did a survey the other day and across the UK, 91% of people still think Mexican food is inherently spicy. Whereas probably on our menu... I'd say about 30 to 40% is spicy. But actually, even in Mexico, Mexican food inherently is not spicy. It's the salsas you put on it that are spicy. And each salsa has an amazing, intricate, different flavour. So it's about trying to educate people that actually there's lots of different, wonderful flavours. And then you can spice it up. You can smoke it up. You can do whatever you want with the salsas. And salsas are a really key part of Mexican food, which, again, trying to get people to understand okay, here's some beautiful salsas, put them on there. They don't naturally do that here. You know, we're used to ketchup and things, but not really kind of adding flavour outside what the chef would add. So you understand the food. And uh, I think you opened your first restaurant in Covent Garden. Yes. I remember going there, sort of in the basement. Yeah. And just talk us through the, the pain of starting a restaurant, because I know friends of mine have done the same. Yeah, it, it's uh, starting a restaurant is, is, it's exhilarating. It's great fun. I literally, and I think both Tommy and I within... The first four or five weeks lost a stone. I mean, it was just non-stop problem after problem. But, you know, again, we were 27 and something at the time and and it was really, really exciting. But, you know, so we started off, well, first of all, trying to find a site. It took me a year and a half to find a site. It was quite a big site, wasn't it? It's a big site, yeah. It used to yeah. be, it used to be um, for those listeners who frequented uh, nightclubs in, in central London back in the 80s, it was a place called Bad Bob's Nightclub and then sat sort of empty for about I think five or six years no one really wanted it had no natural light coming into it or anything we kind of found it having I literally was looking for a year and a half and then eventually sort of saw this site brought my architect along and, and our architect's a company called Soft. because it wasn't street level you couldn't walk past no you couldn't walk past so through a window, you, you couldn't you? see it through a window it was all kind of you effectively walked into the sort of the um where all the kind of coats and things were kept and then walked down. It was a very strange space. But we had these brilliant architects called Sofram who came in and with, with me, we really kind of envisaged what our brand stands for, which is vibrancy. And it's how do we bring the outside in in not a pastiche sort of crass way, in a way that actually has got some style. So we, we found this site and a year and a half later and go, right, now we've got to employ some people. And everyone said, oh, you go to Gumtree, it's really easy. You put on, you're looking for stuff and people will come. So about... 
12 days before opening, we're like, okay, we'd better find some people. Put out a big ad on Gumtree, really excited. Two days later, we'd only had four people that applied for the job because we just weren't a known business and you know no one had heard of us. So we then sort of literally scrabbling around trying to find anyone. We had one funny sort of Texan guy turn up who sort of insists on wearing cowboy boots in the kitchen and just a real kind of rabble, some great people and some sort of really not great people. But because luckily the success of the restaurant, pretty much from day one, we started getting cues and people coming in, just trying this novelty, this different type of food and got a really good reputation. We were able to attract new staff quite quickly. And so we actually had a time where we were supposed to be great quality, affordable, but relatively fast Mexican food. And what we hadn't done, we'd cooked all the dishes in Tommy's kitchen and worked it all out, but we hadn't done it cooking for five, 600 people in a day. And suddenly the food was taking this sort of relatively fast Mexican food concept was taking about an hour, an hour and a half of food to come out. So people were getting really kind of pissed off. So we eventually just said, okay, well, let's just close half the restaurant for a week, bring in loads of new people train them up whilst we're kind of still trading and then we can slowly spread it. So we had this Which ridiculous... is what you normally do. <laughs> Which is what you probably yeah. normally do. Yeah. Uh, so we had sort of three-hour queues and people would eventually get in the restaurant and then see half the restaurant empty <laughs> and go, what the hell is going on? And we had to explain that, you know, we got it slightly wrong and this is what we're doing. But I think that taught us a lot about we're very into humility within the business around, look, everyone makes mistakes. And I think for me, coming from banking, the hardest thing was like, we're going to be the best restaurant that's ever been. We're going to get everything right. We're not going to make a mistake. And within about 30 seconds of opening, I realised that we're going to make a lot of mistakes. I think when you come from the city, and I came from a similar background yeah. to you, you think that if I can get some good, hire some good people, you know, we're not stupid. We've put some money into the business. We've got a good business plan. We understand the market. What can go wrong? What can go wrong? And, you know, it... it <laughs> Business is not a Excel spreadsheet, sadly. No. Uh, and I think a lot of people come out of the city sometimes, realise that very quickly. They clearly get on with it. But it's not as simple as you might think. Exactly. We, we all make mistakes. And I think particularly in the restaurant world, it is very, you know, if you're going to do it properly, you've got to understand it's about people. And people make mistakes. However, you know, we all make mistakes. We all do everything from leaving our keys at home and locking ourselves out to putting petrol in a diesel car. Whatever, you know, We all make these mistakes. And when you're running a restaurant with demanding customers who are paying money and expect a certain sort of quality, you're probably going to make even more mistakes. And so it's about how do you deal with those mistakes? How do you learn from them quickly? How do you adapt? And, and how do you ultimately try and get to a situation where it is relaxed and you're not blaming people? You're just saying, right, how do we fix this and move on sort of thing? So you're trying to rethink um, Mexican food. Yeah. And you had some quite innovative marketing ploys, didn't you? Yeah. Which I remember some of them myself. Yeah, well, we had, um, funny enough, my wife came back, I think she'd been in the garden centre, and came back with these sort of chilli seeds and said, you know, you should do something with chilli seeds in, in the restaurant. And what we didn't want to do was mislead people and think, oh, spicy food. We were very sustainable as a business from the beginning. And so we loved the idea of trying to get people to grow chilies at home. So what we devised was these things. Everyone at the time either gave away toothpicks or matches. So we devised these things which looked like matches, but actually were seed sticks, which you could break off and plant at home. And it was a phenomenal success. I mean, we've I think in 12 years, we've literally probably got through about it's something crazy, like seven million or something. I mean, just people loved coming in, giving them out to their family, their friends. You go online and put in Oaxaca chili seeds. There's all sorts of kind of bloggers and YouTube people talking about how to develop them in the winter. And there's just a, a huge kind of thing around growing Oaxaca chilies at home. 
and that sort of thing was yeah really really successful really popular we did another thing where a lot of we had these um what looked like kind of baby spoons but i kind of loved them as an idea where they're sort of a, a hard plastic bright colored spoon and, and so we said well let's serve those with our puddings they're quite had wahaka put on them quite sort of vibrant and go with the whole brand slightly playful and then we suddenly noticed that loads of people were stealing these things i think we lost in the in the third or fourth year we lost about ten thousand of them or something in a year so we said well right well in january let's do a spoon amnesty let's do something quite funny about this so we did this post and i think we spoke to our pr company said do you think this is a good idea and they went no no, no, no one's going to go for it anyway so we did this very softly and suddenly it was in every major newspaper talking about Oaxaca Spoon Amnesty. I think Mock the Week spoke about it about four times, talking about Oaxaca having a spoon amnesty. So, you know, things like that, which just got our name out there. And I think for me, it's about the theatre and just making people smile. And I think that's, we don't want to take ourselves too seriously as a brand. And all those sort of things really help with that. Well, I say that you, know, you were saying you wanted to be in restaurants or theatre and that a good restaurant is theatre, isn't it? Completely. It's all about, you know, for me as a child, I, I was lucky enough to go out to quite a few restaurants but for me I, I love food but it was the excitement of being in a restaurant it was how you were treated it was the look of it it was how you felt when you came in it was how people spoke to you it was how the food was delivered and so particularly with Mexican food Mexico is the one place in the world where everywhere you go is theatrical it's vibrant it's happening there's stories there's people there's smoke there's fire there's excitement and so coming to Oaxaca it's got vibrancy and we kind of it's a little bit naff, but we kind of like the idea of people leaving in a slightly better place when they, they go out with a smile. So have you been able to uh, maintain that vibrancy? I can see that your vision was more or less like a street market where you choose ingredients and someone cooks it up for you. But I guess over time, as you grow and you've got the pressure of, you know, investors and cash flow, have you been able to maintain that or have you had to tone it down? Uh, no, I think we've pretty much been able to maintain it. I mean, I think the ethos within the business is still the same. It's about, we slightly call it an organised chaos, <laughs> where you sort of come in and it is chaotic. By the nature of we have, everyone orders two to three dishes per person. So you've got plates flying all over the place, tables piled high with, you know, all the food and, and the kitchen sort of the past at the peak times is pretty manic. And we kind of like that because that reflects the market and reflects, you know, where our roots are. It becomes harder in terms of just, the beginning, we'd, we'd attract really, really great people. And we still have great people in business, still have great people coming to us. But it's about making people realise that it's about creating a family feel of individual people. And, and we're very, very adamant that we want individuals within the business. We don't want yeah, people following it, a, yeah. a, a a script. Yeah, because in your restaurants, a lot of people that start restaurants, they think of that's or you know, sandwich chains, whatever it yeah. might be. And they sort of think, right, we'll lose money until we have three. The model's right. We'll build a central kitchen. We'll expand the network and then you share that central cost. Yeah. But you don't really do that, do you? These are restaurants. Yeah, they're restaurants. There's a lot of prep. Our restaurant, the South Bank, I think we spend something like five hours a day making duck balls. We make probably in each site about three hours a day, someone making guacamole. Yeah, there's a lot of fresh ingredients going in every day. Um, really kind of enhancing the quality and the taste. And the big challenge as you grow across the country is how do you keep that consistency? And, you know, again, we're using technology a little bit to try and do that, getting working with a business called Yumpinga at the moment where we have a digital bill where we give someone the bill and it's not on paper, it's actually on a tablet. And they can do a thumbs up, thumbs down with particular dishes, comment on them and then give some service feedback whilst looking and interacting with their bill. So, again, thinking of ways like that to go, how do we keep on top of our quality? How do we keep on top of our consistency? And how do we be innovative? How do we make customers kind of go, oh, that's kind of interesting. 
So you, you were the first to market with, as you call it, real Mexican food. Yeah. But there were some very large players in the US, maybe yeah. more Tex-Mex. Yeah. But now there's a lot of Mexican food yeah. on the high street. And could you see that wave coming? And also, how have you stayed ahead of the game? Yeah, I think we were quite surprised. I mean, there were definitely Mexican restaurants before, but as you say, they were predominantly Tex-Mex. And you could see yeah, the likes of, there was Chipotle and people. And Which is but, a huge company. Huge, right? huge yeah. company in, in the States. And I think they just opened one or were opening one when we opened. Again, they're more, more kind of focused on the burritos and the big mass market than we were, which is a little bit more niche. But we were surprised that it took so long for people. I think the hard bit about it is people realise very quickly when you're making Mexican food, it's because of the nature of the number of ingredients that go into things and the prep that needs to happen. You can't make guacamole. You know, there are restaurants that do it, but who make guacamole off-site or get it bought in or whatever, it just doesn't taste nearly as good. And once you've, you know, for Tommy and I, who've spent a lot of time in Mexico, we just could never dream of serving some dish that didn't taste authentic in how we, we had it there. So we would never do it. I think that's a, a barrier to entry when it comes to quality. So it's not not that easy to do Mexican food, if I'm being honest. But there have been some newcomers coming to the market who, who have been great, done a great job. I think the challenge for them is, I think, on one or two, it's really easy. But a lot of it's quite niche niche flavours and niche tastes. And actually, for us, our vision really is to kind of show people across the UK how delicious Mexican food is. And we need to be able to cater to all sorts of people, foodies and non-foodies, kids and adults. And I think our menu probably does deliver on that, whereas sort of other niche players are going to find that slightly harder. So your business partners, your backers, are the, is it the Nando family or the founders of Nando's? Yeah, they're the sort of the uh, predominantly the family uh, behind Nando's, yeah. So I guess they've been able to provide you with a huge amount of know-how. Yeah, I think I learned a lot by working directly with them, particularly on culture and how to treat your teams and to develop people and, and sort of engage people. They've also been fantastic around just sort of letting us get on with it, the feeling of, okay, well, I think because they particularly know me and trust me, I think there's an understanding that if I need help, I will go for help. And I'm, I'm a big believer in business. And it's a really difficult one to get your head around, and I understand why, but I'm a big believer in business that boards and management teams and shareholders should all be working together. And, I've worked, aligned, I've, yeah. and I've worked in many businesses, advised businesses, et cetera, where there's a divide between shareholders and management boards where they try and hide stuff to make themselves look good. And, and I understand, you know, if you are the CEO of a business and you've been brought in and you've got to do something, but you haven't done it particularly well, you're going to try and hide that. But I only ever want to work in business where you have that open relationship with, with everyone where nothing's really hidden. And it's about working through problems together. And it's about, you know, if you make a mistake, you make a mistake and you go, right, how can we fix that? So um, in terms of scale, though, so they're there in the hundreds, I guess. You're 25 now yeah. into the Oaxaca. And what's your end game? What's the plan? I guess you don't want to get into the hundreds. No, I think, no I think, you know, we've developed another business, which is called DF. The name basically DF comes from uh, Mexico City. So if you live in Mexico City, um, it's known as Distrito Federal de Mexico City or de Ciudad de Mexico. And they call themselves DFers if you live there, the colloquial term. And so we love the idea of this sort of slightly more urban Mexican, um, which was inspired by our kind of visits to Chicago, LA and Mexico City, where yeah, a lot of the chefs in America are Mexicans. So they were kind of fusing kind of almost Mexican diner food with kind of more traditional Mexican food. Like, you know, they'd make tortillas and then sort of 
put smashed avocado or chipotle mayonnaise and then have chili fries with a you know a habanero salt or something like that which we love which didn't really fit into the oaxaca kind of realm but we thought actually it's really exciting for mexican food and ultimately our vision is to get people across the uk to, to love mexican food so we're like well how can we do that with this as well so we created this business called df which was much more sort of informal, not that Oaxaca is particularly formal, but more informal than Oaxaca. You could literally come in in your gym sweatshirt and grab some tacos and, and a little side salad for seven, eight quid and be on your way in 10 minutes. Or you could get your Mexican fix and go and have some really nice, amazing kind of cheese sauce. We make nachos with a uh, with a Trulli farm, which is a lovely Welsh supplier, chorizo on top. Uh, so it's still quite foody. But you go and order at the counter, pay, and then sit down. And the food's brought to you in about ten minutes. So it's still got the freshness of the food, but it's just got this idea of speed and and convenience, which we're really really excited about as a business. And we think so you're actually expanding. So you, you you would have thought looking at the market that you were the first there. There's a burrito bar everywhere now, and there's competition. But you've actually seen that between Oaxaca and those outfits, there's actually a market opportunity. I think there's a massive market opportunity. You know, we, we, we didn't want to go in the burrito market. It's saturated and it's about property, really. You know, it's quite hard to distinguish one burrito from another. Whereas with DF and with Oaxaca, we think they're both completely kind of differentiated from anything else out there in the market and incredibly exciting businesses. That said, as you say, it is a bloody hard time for restaurants in the sector at the moment. Every single cost line is challenged from, you know, food costs with uh, the exchange rate as it is at the moment, sort of around Brexit, you know, 10% increase in food costs sort of come in. Now, well, just on that then, so you're, you obviously, you want to have a sustainable business. Yeah. And you've got this increase in costs. A lot of businesses that I've seen that the sustainability yeah. begins to soften yeah, yeah, because yeah. that soaks a margin. And how have you coped with that? It's following our kind of our heart, really. You know, we, we set up the business, you know, we've, we could probably save tomorrow about four, five hundred grand, I think, on chicken costs if we kind of went down to the sort of the red tractor level. But for us, it's about doing things with conviction. And we, we've always said from the beginning, we want to build a sustainable business. We want to build a business that doesn't leave a negative footprint on the planet. So when, whenever we build new restaurants, we will assess ourselves with an external assessor to make sure we get the highest level of sustainability in the build. So You're you know, carbon neutral. One we're, of the first. We're, 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 we are the first. Yeah. And I think still the only carbon neutral restaurant business in the UK. So again, we probably spend 25, 30 grand offsetting our kind of carbon output which obviously we have to have lights on and extract running and all that we'll use technology as well to drive that so we'll go and you know we now don't put in our new restaurants we don't put water boilers in we use the heat coming off our fridges to heat water which then gets used in the kitchen so we're always trying to use innovation as well to kind of slightly offset the, the and other the restaurants try to follow suit and copy that uh, I don't, I, there's definitely lots of restaurants using kind of innovation from technology point of view. But with us, we're always kind of trying to challenge ourselves saying, right, what can we do? I mean, I'm I'm quite competitive anyway, so I kind of like the idea of being different and standing out. So I'm always saying, right, what can we do better? They're doing that. How can we improve on that? And so from a technology point of view, we can do that. But sustainability, you know, we've always, from day one, we've said, you know, I think we were the first restaurant in, in London. There was a second restaurant in London to recycle all of our waste so when you came into our first restaurant in Covent Garden we had nine bins lined up where you put your wet food your dry food your plastic your glass now luckily the industry's developed a bit so you can get away with two
two to three bins. But we've always said zero landfill, you know, all of those things as a company. And I think it's just part of our DNA now that we just have to follow those principles. And do customers come to us because of that? I don't think they do. And a lot of customers have no idea that we do these things. But as part of our kind of inherent DNA, people like working for us for those reasons. And slowly, slowly people discover it and go, oh, that's pretty impressive. So we're talking about rethinking business and the obstacles that entrepreneurs such as yourself have to overcome. And one of the ones you face, which is, you know, well known, is you had an outbreak of norovirus. And it's not so much about, you know, how it happened. It's about how you got over that. Because to a restaurant chain, that could have been fatal if it wasn't dealt with properly. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was two and a half years ago now. It was the hardest sort of four weeks I've ever had to deal with in my life, I think. And very, very quickly what happened was a, there was an outbreak of, of norovirus in 18 of our restaurants. Uh, norovirus is a virus. It's nothing to do with food poisoning. So it was nothing that we'd actually done internally within our business. I think the first thing was the weird sense of relief and we, when we discovered it was norovirus and not salmonella or something to do with the way we'd cooked things. But even so, customers were still made ill by eating in our establishments due to a product that had come in from somewhere. Um, and so we had to get out to customers and, and talk to them. And I think a lot of a lot of businesses shut themselves off in those situations and sort of try to hide and try to cover up and things. And we very much went back to the values of the business that, right, if we want to survive and we were close to not surviving, how do we need to do this with integrity? Did you go and look for crisis management support? We we didn't originally. And a friend of mine actually said you should go and meet some people. So I met up with some crisis management guys who, who, who were lovely and, and, and good, but I think they were used to dealing with probably bigger corporates and and their advice was sort of, you know, around denial and sort of keeping your head down a little bit and, and also financially kind of paying out stuff. And, and I was very much sort of of the feeling that it wasn't about money. People weren't interested in getting money back or anything like that. And it was about what are you doing about it and how sorry are you that I felt ill? And so we really went to town around, okay, we've got to make people feel better about themselves and, and properly show that we are sorry. And we were all, you know, we had a festival on that week, which we'd invested something like £350,000 in, uh, ironically called Dare the Dead Festival, which um, we had 4,000 people coming to. And on the morning of that festival, we'd brought in chefs from Mexico, we'd brought in bands, we brought in everything. I had to literally in front of our team of about 15, 20 people who had been working tirelessly for the last eight weeks, I had to tell them all we were cancelling it because it was just too big a danger for the brand and the business. If it just took one person to get ill by being drunk to then accuse us of not, you know, stop. How did you find the press? Because the press can be your best friend, but... You know, things aren't going well. It's a good uh, it was story, terrible. Isn't it? We were, yeah, we were I, from nowhere. We actually didn't realise we were kind of that well known. We were on every major news channel at number one or number two news for 24, 48 hours, which was unbelievable. So sitting in the office, going, "What is going on?" And uh, they were, they were pretty, you know, annoyingly. One of the things that, that they did a lot was talk about food poisoning, and we were keen. I was like, going, "We've got to get out there and tell people it's not food poisoning." And our kind of PR guys go. That's not going to make a difference. They want to know what are you doing about it. Um, and that's so, the thing about anyone listening. That's the thing about crisis management, isn't it? It's about getting on top of it and be seen to be doing something. Yes, exactly. You've got to get out there and and try and build trust again, and and I think show people that you genuinely care. So, and we did genuinely cared about it. And I literally I found out there was a wedding party in Edinburgh. They were getting married on the Saturday. They'd come in on the Thursday, their wedding party. I mean, norovirus is, it hits cruise liners and things and everyone gets ill very, very quickly. 
And this wedding party all basically went down on the Saturday morning. The bride was ill, the, the groom, everyone was ill. And I sort of found out about this and I literally got on a flight to Edinburgh knocked on their door, took some flowers and things as a sort of just a peace measure, but just sat with them for half an hour and just listened and went, look, I'm just so sorry. You know, I can't offer any excuses. I can't tell anything. I'm just really sorry and just wanted to tell you how sorry I was. And I I don't think they kind of will ever forgive us for that. Not that it was directly us, but in their mind, they came to us and got ill. But I think they definitely appreciated that sort of level of humility and understanding. And I think we, we resonated that throughout the business, writing, you know, handwritten sort of notes to people and, and, and genuinely trying to say, sorry, now not everyone was satisfied with that. So what happened then? Did, did literally the next day the tills stop ringing? What happened? Yeah, we, so, so sales, sales were down 40%, wow. uh, which from a cash flow point of view, when you've got probably 10 million quid a year of rent going out and stuff like that, makes it huge labour costs. And does that mean you needed more capital? Uh, we needed some more capital uh, to keep kind of a flow. And, and to be fair to my investors, who were great, because I think, again, a lot of businesses would have been like, right, we've got to preserve cash, we've got to get rid of people. And my investors and, and I had seven o'clock calls on most mornings. And, and I kind of said to them, look, if we want to have a business in three years' time, We've got to look after our people. We've got to keep paying everyone. We've got to keep people in the business. We've got to keep the restaurants open and trading as we were before to the point that we paid even kind of lost tips. We looked at the sales and the kind of the tips and things that people got from 12 weeks before and said, right, we've got to kind of match that and pay just to keep our guys over, so keep happy. So as far as you financially could, you, you sort of looked after people? Basically. Looked after people, looked after the team, didn't kind of cut back, etc. And with the belief that, okay, slowly, 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 we're going to build this back up again. And, you know, we believe in our business, we believe in our product. So the market now is tough for restaurants. It might be cost, it can be availability of chefs. I've heard lots of people I know in the restaurant business talk about these things. So how are you managing to navigate this difficult time? And you know, is, it, is it a time to go and start a restaurant? I think particularly when you've been around for 12 years and you've grown used to a particular model, it's hard because, you know, all of our costs, our Soho rent's gone up £400,000, for example. How you know, do you deal with that? Well, it, it's very, very difficult. And I think you can't just suddenly put the price up. So again, we're playing a long-term game. We, you know, at the moment, we believe that the restaurant market's going to go through a fundamental change. And I think what we are focusing on is five years' time. It's like, where are we going to be in five years' time? We want to still be the champion in Mexican food. We believe Mexican food is going to carry on growing. And so we, we're we investing a lot of time in our people, actually. We're putting a lot of money into developing people, engaging our people. We've just added two people into our people team. Someone's got to win in this game. And it's about, right, how do we make sure we're on our strongest foot, getting the best people in the business, making sure our food quality is as good as ever. In order to succeed in restaurants, now you have to innovate. So you might not have to be in Soho. You can be maybe slightly out of town. So it's how you take costs out, but without damaging the quality of the experience. It's a bit of a sort of a hazy world ahead. You know, we're not quite sure where it's going, but we do know from customer feedback that our food is highly valued. People love it. They love the kind of the vibrancy. They love the people that work in our business. So I kind of believe restaurants will have their day again. And people but you will need the right back. backer. So if, if your backer is someone who's saying, right, prove the model, build a chain, let's flog it in three years... You, you'd be in a very different place. I th- yes, you'd I think... long-term view. Yeah, we've got great long-term backers and, and I, we would do, you know, at this particular moment, we'd probably struggle to do that. But we could have sold the business on many, many occasions over the last 10 years. But 
and I think if you came new into the business now, you'd probably find it hard to do that just because of uh, the way the kind of the market is going, the rents, the food costs, etc. But there's always there's always opportunity, and there's always you know gaps around which people aren't filling. So looking back on your, your experience, um, and you know we're talking about rethinking business. Give us sort of two tips for entrepreneurs generally, because a lot of it is um, common. And also two tips for those thinking of going into the restaurant business. Two tips for people going into the restaurant business now is we have a very complicated business. <laughs> you know, the way that our, our fresh food prep daily, big kitchen teams and big waiter teams, um, which is part of the Wahak experience. And I would never take that away from it. But if I was sort of starting again, is trying to keep it simple, kind of minimize the amount of sort of um, product that you need to bring in and make sure what you do do is as good as you can do it. Don't try and, I think now the consumer is much more kind of discerning and understands food better. So you've got to have a good quality, but try and keep it simpler in terms of what you're offering. And yeah, with that, try and keep your kind of your cost low. And I think also try and just try and do something a little bit, a little bit different. You know, there's whatever it is, you know, when we set up Oaxaca, there were lots of different businesses around, but we were like, how do we stand out? How do we do fun? It doesn't need to cost you a great deal, but how do we just do stuff that's a little bit fun, makes people smile or makes people feel that there's a point of difference here? It's not just finding a new cuisine, like a lot of Peruvian food now. It's a lot not of just Peruvian food. going to a new country. And well, I think everything, everything has a fad. So, you know, Peruvian food, Lebanese food, whatever it is, all, all delicious. But I think you want to find your own unique little point, which just makes you stand out a little bit from other people. And general tips, the two of those? So a lot of people like to say, follow your heart. And, you know, people tell you not to do things, sort of ignore it. I think there's an element of truth in that. But I've had a lot of sort of uh, experience where I found people who are very dog headed and believe in what they're doing and don't listen to advice, which can be useful. And I think... Um, do listen to your... Well, people that work for you or...? Uh, people who come to see me before and people I've met who, who are kind of... They're, they're so focused on what they, they want to do, they don't necessarily listen at all. And I think you definitely have to follow your heart because you're always going to find people... A friend of mine set up a burger business called Patty and Bun and came to see me about 12 years ago and kind of said, I've got this great burger business. So I was like, Joe, there's a lot of burgers out there. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to stand out and effectively totally ignore me and created a great business, which is called Patty and Bun. So that there's definitely elements of just following your heart. But I think listen to people and do a little bit more work than maybe you thought you might have to and just working through your concept and making sure you're kind of completely comfortable that it does make a difference. I think the second bit of advice for me is, is show people within your business that you care. And I think... For me, I've always believed perhaps sometimes too much that I need to show from the front in terms of sort of working hard, believing in it. And the worst thing is having those kind of business leaders, especially from a startup point of view, who have all the ideas, but then sort of try and leave it to other people to execute. And I think and that's from, part of your culture, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I think from a culture point of view, certainly within within the kind of leisure space, I think it's very important to show that you are on the floor and working hard, which you know, as you get older, it gets slightly harder to do. Entrepreneurs often a massive rush. And sometimes by building these things slowly, a lot of the best businesses, you know, people say, it's that thing about you overnight success where you weren't actually, it took 20 years to get there. Yeah. And actually by building these things slowly and understanding your customer, you build really firm roots and foundations. I think you do. It's difficult, you know, because we all want sort of uh, to move quickly and we're all kind of, by the nature of being an entrepreneur, you're incredibly impatient. But 
I think when you really believe in something and you really think you can make it work, it's sort of like, look, take your time, get it right, and, and then sort of, you know, know when to dial it up at the right time. Well, Mark, we're going to have to wrap it up now. It's been a great chatting to you. I've been a customer since your first restaurant, and that will continue, and I'll try and get into DF as well, because I quite like tacos. So do appreciate you uh, dropping in today and uh, sharing your experiences with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest. Thanks again to Mark Selby, co-founder of Oaxaca. To discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events, and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. I'll be back very soon with our next episode, so make sure you hit subscribe. But until then, from me, Piers Linney, Thanks for listening.